0: Open our Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah. Our Pastor Lane read a couple of verses earlier. Isaiah chapter 28, I've entitled this morning's message, Line Upon Line, verse 9 and 10. Whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breast? For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. As we get to this um, portion, especially in this chapter that we have before us, it's a fine illustration of the combination of both the near and the far, the past and future events. And we're going to see that here this morning as we get into chapter 28. Prophecies have been fulfilled and yet prophecies that are still in the future. The northern kingdom of Israel, designated here by the term of Ephraim, was soon to go into Assyrian captivity. This was a preview of the coming future day, but it was also to be a warning to the southern kingdom. So we have the northern kingdom, ten tribes, and then we have Judah, the two tribes in the south. So what Isaiah is speaking to the ten tribes Ephraim in the north is meant to be a warning to Judah and Benjamin in the south. Now, this part was fulfilled, the invasion of the ten tribes, when Salmanzer, the king of Assyria, invaded Ephraim. The year was 721 B.C. He overthrew the northern kingdom, and he took the people captive. So as we look at the first four verses, we're going to see the reason that God is going to bring his judgment. So let's open back, go back to verse 1 and make our way to our text this morning. He says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is the head of the verdant valleys. To those who are overcome with wine, Behold the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail in a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crowd the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim. In this context the, the drunkenness is really a reference to their, their, their pride and um, their lack of fear of the Lord it's gonna change in verses uh, seven and eight. But here the idea primarily is they're arrogant and they were proud. Verse four, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is the head of the verdant valley. Like the first fruits before the summer, which an observer sees, he he eats it up and it's still in his hand. So the first four verses, let me just give you a little bit of, of background. Um, when the kingdom was divided after Solomon, of course, it was Rehoboam who stayed in the south, and it was Jeroboam who rebelled, and he took over the 10 northern tribes. And um, they had maybe 19 or 20. I always get the two mixed up. Um, But I think it's 19. And of the 19 kings of the northern tribes, without exception, It says, they did evil in the sight of the Lord after the sins of their father Jeroboam. Every single one of them. Um, Here Isaiah is telling them that they're soon going to be taken into captivity. It's a done deal. This is going to happen. As we look back on it, here's an example of a prophecy being fulfilled. It hasn't happened yet. But in 721 B.C., just as the Lord said... um, They were taken into captivity. Now, this was supposed to shake up the guys in the south because this same king of Assyria, a different king, but still Assyria, is eventually going to come after Jerusalem. He's eventually going to come after Jerusalem. And that one will be thwarted. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, here's the example that I'd like you to see. When those 19 kings came in, and this is going to be pertinent and relevant when we get to our latter part of our study this morning one of the downfalls was King Ahab he married a gal named Jezebel and she introduced to the ten northern tribes Baal worship and that's why when Elijah had had it out on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal um, you know Elijah hightails it and he's fearful because of Jezebel because he had killed 450 prophets of Baal. But she introduced false doctrine, false teaching, and we need to see it in the Old Testament because the Lord is going to specifically refer to it when we get to the book of Revelation this morning and talking to the church of Thyatira. Now, switch gears. Between verse 4 and verse 5, we are now going into the future just like that. And uh, it says, in that day. It's not in the day that is in reference to the captivity. The Lord of hosts for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. Clearly we're talking kingdom to the remnant of his people. And so in verse 6, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So glorious, diadem, crown, this is clearly now something that you want to pick up on as we study the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, that you want to get familiar with um, the Lord switching gears from one prophecy that predicts the fall of the northern tribes, and all of a sudden you're in the millennium. And that's what you have in verse 5 and 6. Then he skips back, and now he gives just how bad... It really is in these ten tribes in verses seven and eight, and now when we talk about uh, in verse uh, two up here, talked about a, a, a drunken drunkenness, but that was spiritual. Here it's literal. Seven, but they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink. Are all out of the way? It's the priests and the prophets had erred. Through intoxicating drink, they are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. And this is pretty graphic. For all tables are full of vomit, and so that there's no place to clean. I mean, that's pretty graphic. And um, again, it was this reason that God is going to bring in judgment Another thing that um, Jeroboam did so that the people would not go back to Jerusalem to worship is that he erected um, two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel. Uh, one of my great treats when we get to go to Israel is we take this, um, oh, it's just a beautiful nature walk, um, in the, it's called the Tel Dan, and when you get to the end of our, our walk, they actually discovered the very place where Jeroboam set up this golden calf. And um, it's sort of a rec- recent uh, discovery. But again, bringing out just how bad they had gotten. Not only were they worshiping the golden calves, but because of Jezebel, also Baal worship was introduced. They mocked the Levitical priesthood. Oh, they had priests, but you didn't have to be a Levite. And that was clearly spelled out in the law. That it's only the Levitical Levite tribes that could be priests. Well, I could have cared less. And so as this, what this reminds me of in our first application is I want to take you to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we go there every first Sunday, and we always read the same verses. You're very, very familiar with these verses, but we're not too familiar with the four verses before the one that uh, actually says, um, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and we read those verses, but I've been to Corinth. <clears throat> A little background here. Um, on top of the hill where the city is down below, the ruins of Corinth. But up on the top of the hill was their temple. And um, they had 1,000 temple priestesses. Female. But they were really prostitutes. So once a week, they would come down from the mountain. And interact. And uh, it was a fundraiser. It was nothing more than prostitution. They just put a legal terminology on it. And Corinth was one of the most corrupt places on this planet. And we were able to visit it and see the uh, Corinthian Canal that was dug out during that time. All that to say this, the church of Corinth was just as messed up as the northern 10 tribes were in the north. This is what communion was like and what Paul had to teach them. No, you can't do that, that's wrong. So let's pick it up in verse 17. He says now, In giving these instructions, so he's in teaching mode to a church that needed teaching. I don't praise you since you come together. It's not for the better, but it's for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Uh, For there must be a faction among you that those of you are approved, may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, no manners, and, it, and one is hungry, and not, in other words, eats all the food before somebody else gets to it, and another is drunk, and you will stop the boat, say, what, during communion? The church in Corinth... Um, to say they're inconsiderate towards the brothers is an understatement but they're actually getting drunk during communion Um, what do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing basically shame on you guys you're taking food and somebody goes hungry and somebody else is uh, getting drunk he says or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Well, we never read those scriptures, but now we go into what we're very familiar with, and we read this at pretty much every first Sunday, where I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night that he was betrayed, took bread. And these are the verses that we're familiar with. But let me tell you, the Corinthian church has more baby ABC elementary teachings than any of the New Testament books because they were heathenistic in their background, a lot of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5 has um, some um, guy sleeping with his husband's wife or some, uh, some incest of some sort, so he's got to deal with that. And he does, very directly, Paul does. Um, major teaching in chapters 12, 13, and 14 in Corinthians, which are some of the definitive chapters of the working of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's chapter 12. Chapter 14 is a very detailed how to and now, how not to use the gift of tongues in particular. And uh, right in the middle, of course, sandwiched between the two, we have First Corinthians 13, which basically says forget anything unless it's done because of your love for the Lord. Good place for an amen? If, 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 if it's not love or done in love, you're a clanging cymbal and a clanging bell. I don't care what you give. I don't care how much knowledge you have. I don't care how much faith you have. It means nothing unless you're motivated because you're grateful for what Jesus has done for you. So we do what we do. Paul says the love of Christ constrains me. That's why I do what I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Well, then I want you to feed my sheep. Got it. I love you, Lord, so I will feed your sheep. So. The last verse of chapter 14, verse 40 says, Let all things be done decently and in order. Obviously, when they were having communion, it wasn't decently, and it certainly wasn't in order. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 28. So you get the feel for the background. Judgment is coming, Ephraim. The king of Assyria is going to take you out. Check it off 721 BC, it happened. It gives us the reason um, because of Jezebel, Baal worship, no good kings, none of the above. And then five and six, we jump all the way into the kingdom age where the Lord is reigning. Jump back in seven and eight, showing just how bad it is. But now that leads us to verse um, nine. Nine. And I want to quote one more verse because verse 9 and 10 is going to turn into a, one of my notes that I missed here that I want to read from 1 Corinthians 3 about the Corinthian church. And I quote 1 Corinthians 3.1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you simply weren't able to receive it. And even now you're still not able to receive it. And you are still carnal, for where there's envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal, Carnal, behaving like mere men? All right, now, back to our text. Verse 9 is actually a question. After reading all these things up, and especially what we just read from 1 Corinthians 3, God's desire is to feed them, but not milk. So here's the the question, and verse 9 is a question. It says, Whom will he teach knowledge? Question. And whom will he make to understand the message? Uh, Those that are weaned from milk? Answer, no. Uh, Those that are drawn from the breast? No. So verse 9 is a question. I want to. Things shouldn't be this way in the 10 tribes in the north. It's not what I wanted for you. But you're carnal. And um, you're pagan, worshiping the bales and worshiping the golden calves. But here's what I wanted for you. Now we get to 10. This is a very, very important scripture in our understanding how God works. So in verse 10, he says, For precept must be upon precept." line upon line, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Verse 10 is God's desired way for his people to grow spiritually and gain. There's simply no shortcuts in doing this, none whatsoever. Line upon line, precept upon precept, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, here a little, there a little. This is what God wanted for his people And it goes on down to verse 12 where he tells them, I really wanted you to have rest. I didn't want you to be worried about being attacked by the king of Assyria. I really wanted you to have peace and rest um, because that's my purpose and my plan for you. And that's what we read in verse 12, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. Now, the Lord, like he says, he's not willing that any should perish. He just wants us to come to repentance so that we can have his rest. And this would be refreshing, he says in verse 12, yet they would not. And so what he wanted for them was basic get into the word, listen to the prophets, line upon line, precept upon precept, and what that will produce He says, is this rest that could only come that way? Well, I couldn't help but thinking what Jesus said when he said in um, Matthew 11, he says, I want you to take my yoke upon you and I want you to learn of me, learn of me. For I am gentle, I'm lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Well, here's the question. How do we learn from Jesus? How does one learn from Jesus? Answer to that question, by teaching God's word, line upon line, precept upon precept. Paul, when talking about ministering, uh, he said in Acts 20, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I mean, the whole thing, all of it, from Genesis all the way through to his time. He says, I'm not going to back off from that. I'm not going to shy away from that. I've given you all of it, the whole counsel of God. Now, when you get into the Bible and you start reading it, of course, as a baby Christian, it's okay because we call it. You do feed babies milk, no problem. But if you're 20 years old in the Lord and you're still feeding on the milk, you know, Hebrews 6 says, let's leave the elementary ABCs of the Christian faith, not going back to things that you did when you were learning your ABCs. And he was wanting them to be mature so that he could give them um, meat. We are saved, of course, we all know this by faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself, it's, it's the gift of God. But how does one receive Faith. Well, Romans 10 says, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing, help me gang, what does it say? Hearing comes how? By the word of God. How? Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And what happens when you hear the word, your faith is increased. Instead of uh, calamity, Jesus said, you're going to find rest for your souls if you learn of me. But there's no shortcuts there either. It's a disciplined study of going through and continuing and what the scriptures teach us how to conduct our services, how we're to go in our faith. The model is laid out for us. No sooner had the church been birthed, 3,000 people get saved, and we have the model of what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. It says, Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's simply Bible study. Continually did that. And then it said they continually fellowshiped with one another. Um, Then they had breaking of bread, one of the two things the Lord said to do. Uh, Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. The main thing is Jesus dying on the cross, and we do it, Uh, here at Calvary, first Sunday of the month, and then in prayers. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church, and it's actually the highlight of my week, getting together with with the guys on Saturday morning. What a blessing it is. I know them better than anybody else. We know what to pray for, and uh, everybody participates in that. Sadly, today, many have left the biblical model and have replaced it with what I call seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven models that are out there, rewriting Acts 2. I'm going to quote a couple paragraphs from Eric Barger and his comment on Bill Hybels in Willow Creek. And it's the repentance uh, letter that they repented of their Uh, structure of rewriting how to build a church. So I'm quoting Eric this morning. He said, Chicago's Willow Creek Community Church has released the result of a multi-year study on the effectiveness of their programs and philosophy of ministry. A new book, it's called Reveal, where you, uh, where are you, is the question, is the name of it. It's co-authored by Willow Creek Insider, Kelly Parkinson and Craig Hawkins stated that the so-called seeker model, made popular by Bill Hybels, is a failure. Hybel himself called the findings earth-shaking, groundbreaking, and mind-blowing. Hybel states, "We made a mistake. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling." People and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people, how to read their Bibles between services, how to do the spiritual practice much more aggressively on their own. Now, incredibly, the guru of church growth now tells us that people need to be reading their Bibles and taking responsibility for their own spiritual growth, Ohio Christian Radio talk show host and commentator Bob Burney reiterated the crux of why so many of us haven't been fans of Heibel's approach to ministry. He said, the new report reveals that most of what they, Willow Creek, have been doing for these many years and what they have taught millions of others to do is not producing solid disciples of Jesus Christ. Numbers, yes. A lot of big churches, but not disciples. I like to say about wide well, and an inch deep. A lot is viewed, but they're very, very shallow where they can't get to the meat of the word. Bernie continues, the one individual who has perhaps the greatest influence on an American church in one generation has now admitted his philosophy of ministry was in large part a mistake. The extent of this error defies measurement because of its impact on churches across our country and in our own valley, I might add. Perhaps the most amazing thing I have seen concerning the Willow Creek admission is that these leaders who ministry philosophy changed the practice and thinking of thousands of churches over the last 20 years are still looking for whatever it was that they thought they had found when they first told us that the seeker sensitive was the new, read the next statement carefully, and this is from their own words. This is one of the leaders at Willow Creek, Greg Hawkins stated. Our dream is that we fundamentally change the way we do church, that we take out a clean sheet of paper, We rethink all of our old assumptions. We replace it with new insights, insights that are informed by research and rooted in scripture. Let me define a little um, bit about uh, informed by research. We call it a demographic study. You go out there and you talk to people. And you say, what would you like to see in a church? And then they model that demographic study and poof, And, um, oh, what's his name? The guru in the CEO business. And it'll come to me about a half an hour from now. (laughs) And I'll come back and tell you. Peter Drucker. Um, Not a Christian. But he, both Rick Warren and Bill Hybels will tell you, their mentor is him. And he's the CEO guru of many uh, Fortune 500 companies. Peter Drucker and has been a big influence. So we checked it out, I remember this 2007, so we thought, okay, we'll we'll see if if they really do. Well, the next week they had Erwin McManus, the very next week for a youth conference, and and, uh, you'll have to do your homework to find out who he is, so there really wasn't a change. Well, what happens when people get away from line upon line? They wanted to rewrite the book, and so they did. But what happens when you leave line upon line, precept upon precept, here little, there little, revolving around the word of God? Let me give you two Old Testament examples. The first one, let's go back to Second Kings, chapter 22. Let's see what happened to Israel. The setting here. One of my favorite kings is Josiah. He had no idea what he was getting into when he became king. The two kings before him, Manasseh, was one of the worst kings that Israel ever ever had. And then after him was uh, Amnon. Both of them did great evil in the sight of the Lord. And evidently what had happened is the temple and Jerusalem became like a warehouse. And it, had been, it got really run down. So in the first couple of verses in chapter 22 and 23, we're going to find Josiah, who begins to reign when he's only eight years old, and he's going to reign for 31 years. He was one of the best kings who ever reigned after Solomon. And during his reign, a great and needed revival comes to the nation. Hilkiah, the high priest, is his counselor, Assistant and advisor. I want to read just um, the first oh, three verses here. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedediah, the daughter of Adiah of Basca. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, in verses 3 through 7, he wants to restore the temple. And I'm not going to read all this except to say that he took money, verse 6 says, for carpenters and builders and masons to buy timber, to hew stone, to repair the house of the Lord. And whoever there need be no accounting made with him, of the money because he was faithful. So they took a love offering too. We're doing it for Haiti. But they took one, and um, it was to clean up the temple. Well, it was during this process in verses eight through 10, it tells us uh, in verse eight, then Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law. They had found the Bible. They hadn't had God's word. The temple laid in ruins. It was a storage house. They're (laughs) cleaning things out. And the priest comes up and says, look what I found. What is it? It's the word of God. And so he takes it to Josiah. Verse 11, it happened when the king heard the words of, of the law. Can you imagine hearing God's word for the very first time? And you're already wanting to do it the right way. Your heart is already towards the Lord, but you don't have a clue what to do or how to do it. He brings him the, the word of God, and he reads it to Josiah. Well, Josiah is knocked out. He can't believe what he's hearing. He goes, we are in big trouble. And so what he does is he tears his robe, and he repents, because now we have a standard to measure. His heart was in the right place, But when he actually saw what the word of God said, he, (laughs) we are in trouble. And then in verse 11, he takes it to the people. Um, Let's see, verse 11. He takes it to the people, and um, the Lord tells him, yes, judgment is coming. But he speaks to Josiah in particular in verse 19. He says, but Because your heart was tender, Josiah, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and uh, you tore your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, says the Lord. It's not gonna come in your time, Josiah. You repented. But it is coming down the road. Now, in 23... The king gathers together all the elders of Judah and the kings. They went into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah with him and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by a pillar, made a covenant, before the Lord, to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant, not just being hearers of the word, but doers. And they were written, that were written in the book, and all the people took their stand for the covenant. In other words, they said, amen. They, they had the word read to them, and they also that's what's missing. And they said, okay, That's what God's word said. In Josiah's time, we had a revival. Over what? Discovering the Bible. Make it personal. Remember, first time that you got it. (laughs) The first time you read it and you go, I get it. And um, it starts to speak to you and minister to you and go, oh, this is how it's supposed to be done. The Bible teaches people how to live. And, um, what to do, what not to do. It's, it's the guideline that's there. All right. Example number two, we need to go to the book of Nehemiah. A little background on Nehemiah while you're turning. Remember, he's in Sushan, Persia. He's uh, the wine taster for the king. You know, in case somebody wanted to take out the king and poison it with wine, he would taste it first and then he'd give it to the king if he didn't die. <laughs> what a job. <laughs> so he's always a happy-go-lucky guy. But one, one day he comes in before the king and his countenance is down. He had sadness written all over him. The king read him like a book, says, what's the problem, Nehemiah? And it's dangerous to be sad in front of the king. And um, he spilled his guts. He said, look, I just got a report back from Jerusalem the people are back they're not doing anything the walls aren't built and the king saw what he was up to He says so what do you want he says I want money I want a record from you orders so that when I get there I'll have authority and money and he says are you going to come back he says I'll come back he says go so Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem Takes a donkey ride all when he gets there, all night long, and he goes run. Nobody's doing nothing, and the walls aren't being rebuilt. The first, uh, the book of Nehemiah is divided into chapters one through eight, is the rebuilding of the walls. And when he spoke to them um, by the word of God, it took them fifty-two days to rebuild all the walls in Jerusalem. That's quite a feat. But when that's the first eight. When we get to chapter eight, they were spiritually just as lethargic and apathetic. Um, and when we get to verse eight, here's how he changed that around. And what I'd like to do is simply read these verses and let them speak for themselves. So that's the background. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in an open square that was in front of the water gate. President Nixon was thus um, fired, and he resigned. And followed. Oh, on no, us not there. Just different different Watergate. Just want to see if you're listening. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of men and women and all who could hear and understand on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. And you guys think I go along. Before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra, the scribe, he stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood, and I'm not going to read all these names, I'll just embarrass myself. Verse 6 And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And again, I'm leaving off the list of names. And uh, he helped, verse 7, he helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read, notice this, distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense. In other words, they just didn't read it he actually stopped and says, okay, this is what this means. You just read it now, let me explain it. And he gave the sense, and he helped them to understand the reading. It reminds me of the Ethiopian, you know, who goes to Jerusalem looking for God, can't find him. He's on his way back home. He's reading the book of Isaiah 53. Philip is there, and he asks him the obvious question, As the guy's up there scratching his head on his chariot. He says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He says, well, how can I unless somebody would teach me? So we read in Ephesians 4, when the Holy Spirit was given, it says when Jesus ascended, he first descended in the lower parts of the earth, and then he ascended above all things, and he gave gifts to men. And there's different gifts of the Holy Spirit, but one of them is pastor, teacher. And the purpose for that is for the equipping of the saints so that you might do the work of ministry. Somehow we got this wrong concept that uh, it should be the pastor or the board or the deacons or whatever that do the work of ministry. No. The Bible teaches our job is to read distinctly, explain what it says. How? Line upon line. Precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. Pastor, teacher. What for? For the equipping of the saints, that's you guys. Me too, to do the work of ministry, so that when you leave here, you are better equipped to explain, for the, to be able to make a defense for the the gospel that you believe in. Another good place for an amen? amen. Amen. That's what, this is why we do what we do here. At Calvary, it was it was modeled for us by Pastor Chuck of course, who simply got it from Haley's Bible Handbook. Page one, Haley's Bible Handbook says this. If you're a pastor, it might be a good thing to take your people through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, and book by book. And Chuck said, that's great. I only had two years' worth of sermons, so every two years he was changing churches. And he liked to surf, and he was in Costa Mesa. He says, I can stay here forever. (laughs) Because now he had the whole Bible to go through. And he went through it seven times, maybe eight, if I remember right before the Lord took him home. But Pastor Chuck taught us to simply teach the word of God simply. No flash, nothing fancy, but line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Let me give you a New Testament example. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. I'm gonna put a chart up at this time on the screen. And, of course, there's seven letters to the seven churches. But if you'll notice the line, the last four up there, churches that will exist, that will be in existence when Jesus comes again. And as you look at these, it's actually a model of church history, um, beginning with Ephesus. And um, the one thing that these churches have in common that he only says that these uh, last four is till I come in other words do this until I come implying that these churches will be in existence when Jesus Christ comes for his church now the first one in Revelation 2 verse 18 um, picking up is a church to Thyatira and this is where Jezebel is going to come back into our story. And the Lord uses a title for Himself. He knows their works, uh, their love, faith, and service, especially their works, the last more than the first. So He commends them for doing something that's right here. I personally believe in church history what we have here is the birth of Roman Catholicism. And I'll tell you why. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, who was Jezebel? She introduced false doctrine to Israel and one of the reasons that Assyria came in judgment against him. False doctrine. In other words, another gospel and primarily that which Jesus hates most, he says, in uh, chapters two and three, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Uh, Two Latin words, nico and laity. Power over the people. Laity, we understand, laity. Nico, authority over. So we have here the impression that um, the leadership was in a position of a hierarchy, in an order, In the Roman Catholic Church, it begins with the Pope, goes to the Cardinals, down through the Bishops, and so on and so forth. There's a structure that's there that the Lord never intended to be a part of the Church of Jesus Christ. And he tells them, I gave you time to repent of your sexual immorality and you did not. Therefore, I'm gonna cast you into a sickbed and whoever commits adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, I take that literally to mean there are many organizations in our country, they say, we're Christian. Ask a Mormon, we're Christians. Ask Jehovah Witnesses, we're Christians. Many different sects and groups say they're Christians. Sometimes people will come and say, you know, I like it here. How do I join the church? And I say, you can't. You can't. Why can't I? I says because you have to be born into it. And so we're not members. We are simply part of the body of Christ and my authority is no different than your authority. Well, let me take that back. The Bible says to respect the book and therefore uh, respect the person who is speaking it. But that's as far as that goes. Somebody want to say amen to that? And the the scriptures are clear and I'm not making this up on the fly here but only because of that. But he hated the idea of ruling over another person. And so he gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. And Peter says, you're not washing my feet. He says, well, Pete, you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least, and I'm washing feet today. He says, okay, Lord, give me a bath. He says, no, just just the feet, Peter. But the idea of the humility of having Uh, Lane uses it often. We're simply unprofitable servants. We're just grateful that Jesus died for me when I know it should have been me taking uh, the rap for what I did. And so because he did that for me, I'm just a grateful guy just like you. So that's the first one that will be in existence. I could make it practical and local. Um, Coach McCarthy, a week uh, on March 5th is uh, I got a picture of him here with a priest laying his hand on him and blessing him. And there's going to be a a big shindig uh, sponsored by the Catholic Diocese of Green Bay. And it gives the times and the events. Well, you throw a name like McCarthy out there, you're going to have a lot of guys show up. What are they going to get? Roman Catholicism. Just by the fact of who's putting it on. And so we, we find that one. Let's go on to the next one. Sardis... Verses 3.16 6, has nothing bad said about them. So here is another group represented in the last times. What they were known for was um, uh, the suffering that they had gone through. And um, Sardis, well, let me get my charter here, that was Smyrna, Sardis, is known as the dead church. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. I grew up in a Protestant church and um, went faithfully until I didn't have to anymore. My dad went every Sunday. Dad was kind of upset when he met the Lord and he went and talked to the pastor of this Protestant church. He said, I've been here for 25 years and never once heard that I had to be born again. And when dad got born again, he went and had a little meeting. And uh, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Question, do we see dead Protestantism today? Where you really see it is in Europe. They're closing them 40 and 50 a day over, they're called state churches. And the only reason they've been around this long is the state sponsors them. But if that goes away, then the church goes away. So... We see dead Protestantism, and uh, there is something bad that he says they also, he says, remember where you have received and hold fast till I come. See? Till I come. In other words, um, for you don't know what hour I will come upon you. Uh, And then he commends some in that church, as I should say in the church of Thyatira, uh, that says that even though they're in the Roman Catholic Church, they don't hold these customs. And he says, you will be clothed in white. So do you have born-again believers in the Lutheran Church? Absolutely. I know some born-again um, Lutheran ministers. And I know born-again people that are in the Catholic Church. Some, sometimes they see it as a missionary field. All right, the next one is Philadelphia. Here's a church... It's noted, uh, verse 3, I know your works. The Lord says, I'm going to put before you an open door. Uh, You have little strength, but you have not denied my name. They were into, and you have kept my word. And so here is a basic Bible-believing church where the Lord says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. I believe this is a reference to the rapture because you are a born-again church, you teach the word of God, I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon notice the whole earth. So clearly the tribulation is in view and he's gonna keep the church of Philadelphia from that. The last one is the church of Laodicea 14 to 23. He says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot, I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What's interesting to me here is their perception of themselves and the Lord's perception of them. They thought everything was fine. And, uh, but the Lord says things are not fine, and he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. That's pretty graphic. Be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. Either you're for me or you're against me. Either you gather or you scatter. Somebody want to say amen to that? That's what we are. We're either drawing people in or we're driving them away, and there is no in-between. If if it is, then you're lukewarm, and the Lord is basically saying that nauseates me. So as we look at Christianity as a whole today, do we not see this? And we do. And the Lord says, you will see it till I come. Um, as we wind things up this morning, I would like to go back to one more verse, and that's in Isaiah 28. And I want you to look at verse 16. If the church is to be built line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, if you're gonna build something, obviously you need a foundation, amen? Look at Verse 16 is a prophecy that Peter is gonna quote in the New Testament. Verse 16 says, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Turn with me to um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, picking it up with verse 6. Peter's going to quote Isaiah 28. He's teaching. And in verse 6, He says, therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious indeed, but to those who are disobedient, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. People who don't come to the Lord and give their life to Jesus Christ, they stumble over that, and uh, they're offended by that. Oh, you narrow-minded Christians, thinking that Jesus is the only way to heaven. What about Allah? What about being uh, sensitive to other people's feelings and religions? Well, I'm sorry, Jesus said if you're gonna follow me, um, It's going to be difficult. It's going to be narrow. And you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. You'll be branded. And uh, are you guys ready to sign up for that? That's really what's being said here. It's getting so weird out there. Some of the stuff that I'm hearing, uh, same gender for bathrooms in high schools. That's passed. One of the guys brought it up. Just passed in Canada. Uh, You can go in any bathroom that you want to. And um, it's just going down quicker and quicker. And we should be standing up saying, sorry, I'm a parent, and that's not going to happen with my kid going to your school. So there are times that you have to make that stand. But the foundation, if we're going to build line upon line, precept upon precept, here little, there little, what's the foundation? Well, in Isaiah 28 a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter teaches, he points us all the way back to Isaiah 28. That's what I want, the Lord said, is solid um, Bible teaching. In closing, I like the way McGee said it, as I thought how we would like to close this thing up this morning, but he just nails it, so let me give the credit where credit is due, but it speaks my heart and mind, and I, I, I assume many here also. We'll close with this. He says there are many Christians today who are not satisfied with their Christian lives. To be brutally frank, they are ignorant of the word of God. Then they hear about a wonderful two-week course that will give them answers to all their problems. They will learn how to handle their marital problems, how to get along with their mother-in-laws, how to guide their children aright, how to become a model employee, my friend. Let me say this to you very candidly. Neither a little close nor some great emotional experience will solve your problems. There is no shortcut to success in the Christian life. There is only one way to grow as a Christian. And it's so commonplace and ordinary that I hate to say it. The word of the Lord was given unto Israel, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It was the daily grind of getting into God's word. What happened? Israel did not follow through. They fell backwards. That is, they were in a backslidden state. There are many Christians in the same condition today. It's not that they are weaker than anybody else. It's simply that they do not spend enough time in the word of God. Now, I realize that this method, uh, method is not very exciting But line upon line and precept upon precept is the only way you're going to grow in your Christian life. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord J. Vernon said it all in that last sentence. And I'm just grateful, Lord, all these programs that people try to bring into the church or whatever, that if they would just simply go through the Bible chapter by chapter and book by book, that every subject and issue would be addressed. And we're thankful for that. We thank you for the book of Isaiah this morning. I Just pray that we would have a new and better understanding of why we here at Calvary and Calvary chapels in general take this approach to ministry. And at times need to speak out those that are doing it in a way that is, is not biblical. Help us not to shun away from these things, Lord. Bless your people today as we go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.